thought what you were saying earlier was very interesting, that you wanted to show your film Heartbeat in the Brain, but you wanted to wait until you had some scientific validation of... Ideally, the, that's what I would do. Yeah. Um, alternatively, but maybe to protect the one off, one could do it. If only there was a technique, but I, I think I don't need it. I was going to say that one could let it out on a, I don't know how you do it, I'm not into the video world, so one could get a pound of watch and then hopefully get enough to do some really good brain, you know, the whole research. You know. To do the research properly would be quite expensive, but I'm sure one can raise money in other ways. Right. But I think, in a way, the film, if it's, I'd always thought, because he was going to make this film of whatever, our lives kind of thing, with him being the first to be trepanned and me doing the research on it. And we had quite a lot of, um, you know, quite famous people wanting to get trepanned, so it would have been quite an amusing film. And hopefully shown um, high efficacy. It strikes me as being emblematic of this whole issue where you made this amazing film Absolutely amazing. One of the most amazing things that I've ever seen. Oh, thank you. And yet you feel sort of um, uncomfortable with it. You want to show that there's some scientific validity or some justification behind trepanation as opposed to appreciating it artistically, experientially. And it seems like that's emblematic of the larger psychedelic I mean, in Question. a way, my bigger artwork is trying to um, ease through the change of consciousness, cultural consciousness, to the fact that alteration of consciousness is a very positive or you know um, procedure for people to use at some point to cure or to lift or to enhance enjoyment. There are all sorts of different uses, spiritual. And society should just be more like um, India was or something, which has, has absorbed it in its cultural behaviour. And, and I see that as my, in a sense, artwork. I, I was painting, which I love doing, and then I thought, well, it's rather self-indulgent when I'm sitting on what I consider a very important line of discovery and potential usefulness, which is how to use these compounds to, in a controlled fashion, alter one's consciousness. I think it's a wonderful step for our uh, we're at a bit of a brink, we've entered a new world, uh, the tech world thing, and we haven't quite kind of adapted to it, so we're going into mental health and unhappiness and da da da, all that. We need help. And I think to be able to uh, alter one's consciousness, and now the scientific work, which I, I've been doing, and others, is showing how, say, LSD, actually 
enhances the connectivity at every level, at the cellular level, and then at the network level, and then at the understanding yourself level, then interacting with other people level, and then interacting with nature, and the universe, blah, blah. So the whole thing becomes much more interconnected. Right. And another thing which I've only just more recently become very conscious of, through an article in, I forget, Time or something, about evolution, I've only got to chapter three at the moment, but um, it was just showing how the early species of hominids intermarried species, you can tell quite much more than the thought 10 years ago. Oh, right, yes. And that was a very um, useful thing because it widened the genetic base and the best survive so uh, what was to become um, Homo sapiens had been pre-selected from quite a wide gene base to be yeah. adaptable. Yes. And basically adaptability is connectivity because the more you're connected the more you have the possibility of adapting. So in order to adapt to the new society and not go um, as you know, go into epidemic of um, mental illness, etc. Um, we need to expand our potential to adapt, and that's what a psychedelic does. So I think I'm not saying, I, yeah, I'm saying it can be central in helping us through a tricky period. It can be a change which suits the problem. Of making us more adaptable. Back to trepanation, what if there were no medical evidence that it was beneficial in any way? What if, what if it were studied extensively and the research was entirely conclusive that it had no benefit? Well then I've wasted quite a lot of time. But have you? If, if that's the case, um, what if I think, I think it probably has a physiological effect and that's why I'm, I really want to do the research because that would be satisfying and also useful because if to just give a slight lift in cognitive functioning to the level, at some level of cere cerebral circulation of pre-13, you had more energy, more, you know, like but I think it's interesting that you say that you would have wasted time because what if the same thing were to have happened with psychedelics? What if everyone studied psychedelics and they decided yeah. it turns out they're not actually useful Absolutely. for anything? Would that make your experiences any less valuable? That's, that's what my children always say. Poor mum. I <laughs> hope she doesn't suddenly decide it was all a total waste of time. <laughs> but, you know... I, I personally, sometimes I think that, you know, you know, psychedelic people, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, whatever one thinks. But, um, <laughs> but how could um, it be if you enjoy the experience? But it psychedelics, I've definitely enjoyed. I would say, I remember being asked how much they enjoy, improve, increase my kind of, and I said 60%. I meant it. That was a long time ago. But, you know which is a lot, it, it could be, 
I was learning more, having more experience, da, da, da. you know, working on a higher uh, a, a horse with a stronger horsepower kind of thing, um, which is, in a way, quite fun. Right. I just, I sometimes feel concerned that the validity of these experiences is treated as if it hinges on medical evidence. Yeah. So if it turns out that ketamine isn't an antidepressant, then suddenly every revelatory experience anyone ever had with ketamine was a waste of time. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And actually, I'm being ironic. Yes. Because I actually think it's right. Do you see? <laughs> I actually think the sample show it's right. But if it doesn't, I, I wouldn't cry. I wouldn't be sad. You know, so be it. You know, if, if, Placebo is very strong, and if placebo helps you for a while, why not go with placebo? I mean, uh, it's all just a matter of getting through the night. So, um, but I would prefer that it was real. It, it would just, I mean, be more satisfying all round. But I now wouldn't know if I notice anything. That's, if I'm being honest. Well, how could you? I mean... Because I got used to it, or does it not last? Or, do you see what I mean? We don't know anything. It'd be fun to know. It'd be fun to know that the hole in the skull, which is made of a different type of bone, doesn't close in the same way as other bones. That's what I understand, but I have to say I've never studied it. I've never got anyone else to study it on my behalf. And maybe that's what I should get into a little bit more now. But it's very difficult to assess these things unless you have an identical twin or a clone of yourself that has lived the exact same life as you, who has that one yeah. small variable altered. They yeah. are not But you trepid. can easily find out. It's quite easy to find. It, it's so easy to do the research into trepanation. It is mad that it's not done. And, but it's very difficult to do. I mean, that's the crazy thing. I, I got plenty of people who would volunteer to be trepanned, love to see, you know, because they've under or think the hypothesis could be right and therefore wanted. And it's done thousands of times in every hospital for, trepan for operating the skull, and the nurse usually does it because it's quite a prosaic operation. And yet, one can't do this. Um, it, it's very difficult. I'm sure if I put my mind to it fully, I will be able to do it legally and get it done. Or on the edge. I mean, there's always areas where the legality is slightly looser than um, the poor, can, you know, people are absolutely convicted, they're right. It's always interesting when there are these things like psychedelics or trepanation that people were so comfortable with thousands of years ago yeah. that are totally taboo. Yeah. and frowned upon today. Yeah, no, and they did it with success. There's a very high rate of um, not getting septicemia and, and living. You can tell if a person lives after trepanation. And in the old days, I think it went quite a lot with alteration of consciousness, because it was very often the priests and the kings, the kind of ruling elite, who um, took the drugs, they were the priests, a lot, so they took the drugs, and so they experienced that come down, it's, it's that last bit at the bottom, which one could say is the, the low of the adult level, which is the lowest level, so when they take the compounds they're up here and then they come down, there. Well, the hypothesis is that 
trepanation alters how um, the heartbeat affects the volumes in the brain of blood and cerebral fluid. Slightly alters it when it has more of a pulsation. And it wouldn't, it w wouldn't be that difficult to test. And funny enough, just recently, the scientist I'm, I'm working with in one area, he said that it's a well-known factor in, um, in um, scientists who work with animals, who are trepanning animals all the time for different procedures. And they say it's a well-known fact that there's high perfusion after. So, actually, there are many different ways of looking at it. The simplest way would be with people. I would choose uh, um, a population of people with migraine or headaches um, because it historically was used for headaches. And Jamie, my husband, um, he had headaches since he was, whatever, eight or something. One day a week or two days a week, bad headaches, not migraine, bad headaches. And then when he got trepanned, he's really never had another headache. Um, so, I mean, funny enough, I was looking in, in preparation for your coming and saying you wanted to talk about trepanation. Yes. Um, right in 66, I suppose, um, we were here talking about trepanation early with my father. And so we, Joe went to get the encyclopedia, which was 2009. No, it's, it's too complicated a story. I'll, I'll leave that bit out, but it's quite a funny story. But anyhow, um, this, the 2009 encyclopedia, Chambers of the about trepanation, says that it's increasingly being done for um, madness, in other words, I forget what words they use. Um, often with apparent success. It's quite interesting. Yeah. And that was before the First World War. And then with the First World War, they did lobotomy. And they suddenly decided, ah, trepanation is just um, superstition from primitive people. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's been totally discarded. But it is very odd that every culture, more or less, in the world has a trepanation it's well known that the cannabis plant contains a wide variety of fascinating phytochemicals. It's one of the most studied plants in the world. And so I'm always amazed when researchers discover new compounds in cannabis. What was especially amazing is that in 2019, a group of researchers in Italy found a new cannabinoid called THCP that is structurally very similar to THC, but it has a seven carbon chain instead of a five carbon chain. The extension of that chain gives THCP much greater potency. So at the CB1 receptor, which is responsible for the stoning effects of THC, THCP binds with 33 times higher affinity, making it the strongest known phytocannabinoid. I thought that this would remain a obscure scientific curiosity, and I was amazed to find that within three years of its discovery, techniques had been developed to industrially produce THCP from hemp. I saw that Canaclear.com was selling it. 
I independently ordered a sample, analyzed it via NMR, and found that the material was bona fide. So if you are interested in THCP, Delta-8 THC, HHC, or any other unusual phytocannabinoids, go to canaclear.com. All of their materials are third-party tested for quality and compliance, and if you use the code HAMILTON, you will get 15% off any purchases. Thank you, Canaclear. Brilliant. And could you take me through the history of your own involvement with trepanation? Because, you know, most people, when they hear about this, their initial response is, at the very least, that it's dangerous, if not dangerous and generally a bad idea. Um, Were you initially resistant? How did you first learn about this? How did you get to the point that you were seriously thinking about performing the procedure on yourself? Right, right. Funny enough, it's quite a long, had quite a long history, which I've never actually thought about. But I was living in London at that time, and um, um, someone came from Ibiza with some LSD, and I was actually looking for something else. And he said, "Oh, um, anyway, that was my first LSD I took." And it was very, very interesting and started a new romance with that person. And he had got it from someone who got it from Bart, had made it Bart, my future um, great love. He had synthesized it. He made the LSD in Ibiza, in his kitchen, yeah. Um, Because he had had LSD in research in Holland. He's a medical student. So he had had LSD and he said, knew what was going on. And then he and his mathematician friend in Amsterdam, one of those brilliant mathematicians, they decided to make it and they made it in Arnold's mother's kitchen. And she thought it was a dirty saucepan and threw it away and they had to make it all again. And that was a LSD which went to Ibiza, which then kind of turned on Europe. And it got to me in London and my immediately, I don't think I want that. And then I, I took it and, and really thought, this is amazing. But I also thought it's absolutely amazing, but it's more like a trip to the fun fair than real life. I couldn't quite see how you lived on it. Mm. Was anyone living on it? What? It, was there anyone that was using it regularly enough to...? Um, not that I knew at that point. Right. Yeah. So anyway, so then what happened? Then I had a very... I was living in London at this um, flat, and how did I get into it? Yes, I, I mean, it's a boring story, but um, someone... Ah, this rather um, not attractive clever but not attractive character who turned Leary, funny enough, onto LSD called Michael Hollingshead. He was hanging around my flat in an irritating way because it was quite a, a, you know, quite a meeting area. It had a tiny little room and then one big room and we all lived in a tiny little room. It was a very funny period. And anyway, this person was born hanging around. And then, to cut along the story short, he uh, he had a bottle of LSD, which he got from Sandals. It was famous for its size. 
and he poured it into my coffee. He said, do, do you want to know whatever? And I said, no thanks, because I've got hepatitis. And then he poured it into my coffee, etc. So I had a, as bad an experience as more or less one can have. Why would he do that to you? What? Why would Hollingshead do that to you? Um, to take advantage of me. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, Jesus. Yeah. So he, there was something spooky about him. Do you know, I think he's clever, very clever, but um, slightly um, on the field, something one didn't really like. A baby felt it, my sister's baby, funny enough. How old at one point? I've, I've heard bad things about him from everyone that ever interacted with him. Right. Well, I think he was attractive to certain kind of men because he, he was clever, you know. He, he was, at some level, moved the board well kind of thing. And I, I find it, I never liked him, I never liked it with him and made it quite clear, and so he did that. And so th th that was very damaging. I mean, it's, what it is, it's a, you know, it's a, a, a slash through the nerves at the back kind of thing, and it leaves a, a wobble. So, but that's life, and I mean, life comes with all sorts of traumas. And so that slightly frightened me off uh, and I came back here actually and lived in a hut in the, uh, the beyond the orchard, lovely little kind of animal hut for months. And um, um, then a very nice friend came by and said, You must come, there's a party in London, Ravi Shank is playing on the river, da da, you know, fun, 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 what are you doing? So then I went, and there I met Bart, and then we started to love affair. It was obvious we were going to be partner. And um, he, he was, he's a very special man, because he was just very unique, actually. And I would consider um, the only genius I've met in the way that he put new thoughts together, which other people hadn't. And sometimes they were wrong. But, you know, on the whole, there was a lot of, lot of very incredibly brilliant insights. Not a lot, a lot. More than any other person I've ever met. Um, and a lot of conviction, I imagine, to do so. Total, yeah, total. He was, he was, I mean, you can see how he, genetically one ended up with Bart, because they were naturopath doctors, which is already rather superior in society. And oh, I can't remember how many generations, his father, grandfather, great-grandfather, one of them was in Java, whatever. So it's a long line of naturopath doctors, and they had two baths in the, in the bathroom. Um, so you had a boiling hot bath every morning and then a freezing cold one. Well, I mean, it's a certain type of upbringing. And he was the oldest son, and then um, his mother, who he adored, obviously, but I mean, uh, um, died when he giving birth to the brother 
and the father was the doctor looking after the birth. And um, so there's a kind of slight emotional thing, and he lost his mother to his brother. And so then, uh, anyway, I was too boring for you, unless you see the whole picture, but it's an interesting makeup. So he was an older brother with a younger brother, and brilliant, very beautiful, all the teachers' favourite star, uh, etc. Um, and then he was no drugs, they charred and all that. And then the, in, in Amsterdam at that point, there were the provosts who were the kind of naughty, clever, cool boys. And a lot of his friends were provosts and they were all smoking and taking other things, you know. So they, and so they were always saying, come on, Bart. And then finally, he did. And so that he realized the joys of, um, you know, the amazing capacity. And, but he approached it in a very scientific way. And then he, at a party in Amsterdam, there was a guy who was standing on his head. And I said, why are you standing on his head? And he said, I've run out of um, grass, so I'm getting more blood in my brain. And that made Bart think, wow. Anyway. Um, so the, I can see how the hypothesis came in his brain. And it's a clever hypothesis. It's to do with gravity. It's saying that gravity has every, the fact that we sit upright has every advantage. But it's against the force of gravity in regards to blood and cerebral spinal fluid. So there's an ad adaption, like there are when volumes, it's not my field, but I know people like Yuri whose field it is. And so when, when things change, the whole thing changes. And so our upright position came with a certain loss, guesswork, a mouthful, or less, I don't know, of blood from the brain capillaries. So there was less brain function, simultaneous activity. And because of that, there needed to be more control, constriction to direct the behaviour so it's most able to adapt to the changing circumstances, the same old thing. But, um, and so I think that that was the kind of motivation for us to develop this very highly developed ego system, i.e. imposing a government, an upper circuit of control over the normal reactions of an animal. And I think that slowly became to be, over millions of years, became into acting with sound and the word and control, no, not, you know. So it's a network in the brain of constriction in the sense that it's directing blood to where it needs to go to survive. This podcast is brought to you by Sheath, a state-of-the-art undergarment. Tailored from spandex and modal, Sheath features a patented dual pouch design for genital compartmentalization. The primary pouch cradles the scrotal sac, providing light testicular support and segregating the scrotum from the thighs and perineum, as well as the head and shaft, which are isolated in a secondary pouch featuring a micturition aperture. The separation of thighs, testicles, and 
shaft limits skin-to-skin contact, keeping those wearing sheath dual-pouch underwear less vulnerable to chafing and soothed by cooling airflow throughout the anogenital region. The secondary shaft enclosure can also accommodate other items for a natural look that is both aesthetically pleasing and discreet. Thank you, Sheath, for your sponsorship. Use the promo code HAMILTON for 20% off Sheath underwear technology. And why didn't he continue working with less invasive techniques for altering blood flow to the brain, like standing on your head or even laying down in a bed or... Um, standing on your head needs a lot of muscular <laughs> control and discipline and all those sort of things. And, well, trepanation is not easier. No, I agree. Um, but I'll tell you, I only did it actually for, at the end, for intellectual curiosity, in the sense that um, it's a very fascinating hypothesis. And what it's suggesting is that by creating an expansion window in this closed system, the skull, cerebral and, uh, you know, back, um, by doing that, um, sorry, I've just forgotten where I was coming from, um, what it, what the hypothesis is saying that um, the heartbeat, which we all know, needs an expansion window to express itself. If it's in a totally solid thing, tube, it won't expand on the heartbeat. And as the skull closes, which is the process, as you all know, ends around 21 or 24 or 18, or whatever skull you've got, um, it, does, it, it suppresses some, um, Mark used to say it completely stops, I never thought that, but I think it, it suppresses some of the pulsation. You have less of a pulsation, and the pulsation is the force, and the force also gives the force of the cerebral spinal fluid to circulate. So you have a healthier cerebral spinal fluid, and with more blood, the blood blows up more to a different level. So the the pressure of the heartbeat results in a higher volume of blood in the brain capillaries. Right. Do you see? I do, I'm I do. I'm not explaining it. No, no, I, I understand. I mean, I think e even with this, this uh, theoretical framework and this potential explanation, it's an amazing leap of faith to do it. And I try to imagine, ah. I try to imagine myself in a similar situation. Right. And, and uh, yeah. And it's almost, maybe I'm projecting something onto this that isn't appropriate, but I almost feel it like it's a very romantic gesture to do something like it. It's an amazing gesture of trust in someone else to do yeah. something like that. Yeah, trust and interest. Um, absolutely, it was a love affair. And I quite agree with you. The love affair was the extra energy. Like I gave up nicotine, but that was no problem at all. By the combination of LSD, and the intention, but the intention will strengthen by the love. So I think in most of these sums, if one can have the added force of love, that's great. So I don't think I would, no, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't love Bart. Of course I wouldn't have done it. No.
by going and dreadfully holding your head. You know, I mean, there are other ways of getting high if you want to get high, and um, what a nasty thing to do. <laughs> do you know what I mean? No one wants to do that. So that was love, you could say. But on the other hand, Joe, we were a threesome for years, a long period of years. And um, Joe, we went, when we went to Holland, Bart was thrown out of England. A little man came at midnight tapping on the door, like a fairy story. And I remember a tear trickled down Bart's face because he knew that was the end of the fairy tale. And um, it was the man from the home office, rather polite, um, saying, uh, your visa is finished and you must leave the country. And then Bart was never allowed back into England. And that was because he'd given an interview saying that LSD could be a very useful compound. I can't remember what he said, but something. What we're saying now. And that in and of itself is frightening to see how speaking openly about these beliefs can yeah. have such a negative effect on somebody's life. Very interesting. You wouldn't think England had such armed control. And he came and tried to get, I mean, it actually completely wrecked our lives because we, neither of us had any money. And, but I here could um, live somewhere. So, you know, anyway, it would have been easier with us to, and we were trying to research and spread the information and get doctors involved and it'd be much better to do it here in England. So that's what we were doing. And then he was thrown out. Um, and then everything became a lot more difficult. But it, sorry, I don't know where. Oh yeah, so anyway, Joe was going to trepan himself. Joe, in the psychological thing, Joe's the younger brother. He is the younger brother. He's got an older brother. And so Bart kind of, um, Anyway, see, then he had several attempts at trepanning himself. Joe, Joe was a boxer at Oxford and school. He was the captain of the boxing and he was quite small. So he was small and quick and did what older brother told him to do. So when older brother said, you know, um, anyway, but like me, he, he could absolutely see the um, the rationale of um, the whole story and was very interested and he's a brave person, which I'm not, I'm not a book art. And, and so he did it, but he did it incredibly badly, as Joe did. I mean, I can't remember which occasion, the occasion, so then I went to Holland. He did it badly? Uh, yes, five times, I think. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, they were, I mean, it became quite funny in a sense because it was so repeated. But one time was when actually Bart was going to trepan me in Amsterdam. This is when Bart had been thrown out of the country and I'd gone with him. And so he was going to do it in Amsterdam. But then his friend, the mathematician, I think, told the officials. So I was thrown out. I mean, it's ridiculous seeing all this throwing out. And then um, when I got home, it was one of those, but I don't want, this is really off the story, <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> but anyway, when I got home, Joe, Joe was 
trying to trepan himself. And Bardet said, oh, why don't you use a self-trepan? Because it's only good for the people in Africa. You know, then they can all, we can give them, or they can go and buy a trepan, and everyone in Africa can get trepan. That was his, his kind of thinking thrown out to poor Joe. And so Joe had loyally gone and got, the, he'd no money either, so I mean, it's the cheapest machine, you know, whatever, hand trepan. And so Joe was trying to do that, but she said it was like trying to uncork a bottle from the inside. <laughs> the whole thing, because you have to get it. Anyway, it was a disaster. So when I got back, he was there struggling away and said, oh yes, said, and someone had given me a poisonous drug before we left, when it was meant to be mescaline, I remember. It was meant to be mescaline. And it was something which turned out to be um, one of those famous killers, um, restricting or one of those sort of things. Um, yeah, so when I got back in this boat, we had to travel by boat because we had no money, and it was the roughest sea, and it, it was hell kind of thing, and got back to England, and then um, Bart couldn't get in. Yeah, that was his first rejection. I mean, uh, oh yes, and then I got in and went, and, and Joe was trepanning himself um, and couldn't get the, the thing to grip um, with the hand trepan. And so he said, would I do it? So then there's this, I mean, it was a kind of cartoon sort of behaviour. <laughs> Me kind of putting my, all my weight under trying to get this wretched thing caught. <laughs> And, it, you know, him saying, no, I don't. And, you know, it was all very um, funny, in a way. And then I can't remember. I think this happened. Yeah, I think that happened. I must check with him. But I think he suddenly got faint or something. So then I rang the ambulance and he, he was taken off the ambulance. And then, amazingly, just I'd have loved to have known the constellations of that day, because then the telephone went, and it was my family. My father, who was a very bad diabetic in the sense that he kept his sugar level very low because he was a painter and didn't want to damage his eyesight, so he was always on the verge of sugar lack, um, and often plunging once a day, rather lower than he should, kind of passing out and things. So that's why I knew altered state from a very early age, and I knew the beneficial potential of trying to keep the sugar level normal. Um, and uh, anyway, I was told that he was in a coma, the worst type of coma. And I came down here and, you know, I adored my father, we were very, very close, and he couldn't speak, and it was very sad that, but it came back, he recovered. So, but it was an amazing confluence of bad happenings, which happens in life, funnily enough, I find. Little knots of, it's almost as if it's coincidence. Well, it's coincidence. But, so, anyway, to cut a, sorry, a very long story to the end, then Jamie had several, Joey had several more attempts. And then he, I was in America for the first time, actually. 1970, and he decided he he pushed me enough through uh, through enough with his trepanations. He'd do it while I was away. He hadn't told me he was going to, but he did. 
and he did it while I was away and did it successfully. And um, When I got back, I noticed the difference. That's all I can say. This podcast is also brought to you by Lucy Nicotine, a company that makes nicotine pouches, nicotine gum, and nicotine lozenges. I particularly enjoy the apple ice-flavored nicotine pouch. It is a refreshing and well-formulated product. If you don't already use nicotine products, I recommend you don't begin. They're habit-forming. But if you do, I think this is the finest nicotine product on the market. Thank you, Lucy. And in case this isn't already obvious, warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. He did it by himself. Yeah. But, I mean, that's neither here or there, right. if you see what I mean. But what, what was interesting is that I, who knew him very well, noticed a very subtle change for the better. And um, what, what sort of change do you notice? I think what it does... Is slightly lower. We've all got our neurotic networks to deal with this or that or whatever it built up. And I think as you get into adulthood, you tighten them. It all becomes more rigid, the system and the, or the, uh, the, the physical system and the psychological system becomes more rigid. So I would say the change it brings about is very subtle. And I'm sure you can imagine it. It's that level where you are slightly more sensitive, slightly more fun, slightly more... all the things you rather like, but slightly more all the things you don't rather like, probably, too, you know, self-awareness and... Blah. But still, overall, I think it's better and the person's happier. And that comes over in the behavior. So I think it's a little lift. Yeah. And um, I noticed it, now it can easily be imagination. Do you know, so um, nothing's impossible. But it was slight changes in the personality of a slight, it's like when the government, or the ego, which is like the government, loosens its constriction slightly. Because mm. it doesn't need to keep them quite as tight. Because if you see it, as a system, and the danger in the upright adult talking ape is that there's a little, it would be a bit happier with a little bit more blood up there. So it's having to kind of keep the constriction slightly at the ready more than a normal animal. So that's why we have this ecosystem of conditioned. Um, conditioned, repressive system. And that now, what's very interesting is now, with the brain imaging study we're doing, uh, I always wanted to look in at the ego, study it. So anyway, so, so Joe's improved. And then I decided, well, I think I should do it. Do you know? Um, the hypothesis made a lot of sense. Other hypotheses about it, uh, it had enabled me to go from a person who was deeply wounded by a, a, a rape of uh, massive 4,000 doses of LSD, let's say. Um, and it made me, so I was rather like someone who was allergic to the water who decided to marry a um, person who 
paddle rafts round the ocean as his life, joy. To me, for me to get together with Baal meant that I, I had to live at the high level, in a sense, to enjoy the same intellectual game. Um, no, sorry, that's a bit of a divergence. But I, I just saw that the trepanation gave an advantage. Well, here's a question, even, and of course I didn't know Bart, but imagining being in that position where you have a hypothesis, mm -hmm. you have a experimental flair and you decide to do this self-experiment and you believe that the results of the experiment are encouraging and you tell other people mm -hmm. about that you do the self-experiment and you believe that what you have found is positive and encouraging. Yeah. But I would still feel very concerned if other people did it. How did he, did he feel a certain responsibility in the people that were following his, in his footsteps or, or did he, was he so confident that it was a I mean, Not that much. <laughs> I mean, like he said to Joe, but I remember we were going off in train to Amsterdam when we were being thrown out and leaving Joey to stay in my flat to trepan himself while Bart wasn't there kind of thing, so Bart wouldn't get accused. And I remember Bart just saying quite oh, by the way, I think it's a jolly good idea to use a hand trepan, then people in Africa can trepan themselves. <laughs> and then, so Jay then dutifully went to me off and got a hand trepan, which was obviously a disaster. Um, <laughs> but, um, so he didn't worry to, you know, Leaders have disasters following them, don't they, on the whole kind of thing. I think it's kind of part, part and parcel of leadership. Um, but, um, so anyway, so then I decided to do it myself. And Joe said, oh, he'd do it. I thought, thanks a bunch. <laughs> you know, I think I can do it better. Better than your five attempts, son. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a sculptor, I've trained myself at sculpting and I, I'll do it myself, thanks. But lovely to have him there, obviously, you know, I've never done it by myself without him there. Yeah, I, um, yeah. And then we did it and then everything was going wrong. And somehow I got kind of perfectly in tune with the intention of doing it successfully at my first attempt. I, you know, decided to do that, cautious and perfectionist, and it, and it was it was a it was a kind of um, very and I remember it slightly annoyed Joe that I said I wanted because I had a great aunt I adored and had just died she left me seventy pounds and um, so that enabled me to buy a Super 8 camera to do and I just thought doing a film as I'm an artist would slightly separate me from it and make it more fun, you know. So, and he thought that was awfully stupid. I remember him being quite annoyed with that whole idea. And anyway, we did it. And, um, yeah, and then I thought, well, the, the trepan, uh, the machine is short. And funny enough, to get instructions, it's an amazing coincidence, the, the best tool shop, I mean, instrument shop in London was called Down Brothers and was in near Holly Street. And I went in there and they were sweet old men and I said I was looking to, you know, 
whatever, I can't remember what they said. But anyway, they showed me all the different Japans and the ones which automatically stop, you know, but are very expensive. And then, uh, so I bought this quite sophisticated dentist shop, basically. But I used a flat bottom, I'm very precautious, very cautious, a, a flat bottom so it wouldn't damage um, the bone. Because, I mean, of the membrane, I mean, once you get through to the brain, the danger is, obviously... To hit the brain. ...that you damage the membrane around the brain. Um, so that's the kind of big thing to avoid, obviously. Yeah. And so I used a, a, a drill with a flat bottom for the last... There's three layers of bone. The middle one has the blood and it's soft. The um, bottom is quite hard. And so it makes it much slower, funny enough, to do that. It, it wasn't the perfect way, but it, it was a safe way. Um, so I knew the second I was through. And, um, but I, it's not something I'd, I'd recommend it anywhere at all. I mean, I tried for four years to find a doctor, and I found four doctors who almost did it. And then one said, if God had intended, he would have given us one. Well, he did give us one. Um, and the other one who I found most convincing was a wonderful man, Dr. Ratner, who had a hole in his head, funny enough. And he, he um, was very interested in it. But he, he said, you know, you spend all this time getting your degrees and things, and if something went wrong, then oh, whatever. So he refused it on that ground. But, um, and it's a funny thing to do. I mean, I'm a quite a cowardly person. Uh, I mean, I, I'm conscious of every danger. So that's why I calculated that the, um, the thing will break down. And then, this was instinct there, I brought it forward today. It was going to be on a Sunday. And then we were asked to a party, and they were kind of rather establishment left-wing journalists kind of thing and I thought oh well I should bring it forward then we can go to that and everyone will think how oh, very interesting and you know it, it will be a good move forward to get trepanation on the national health <laughs> <laughs> and anyway so then we went to the party and it wasn't, I mean, it was quite a good party, but, you know, everyone said drug, blood was dripping from her forehead. It wasn't at all, <laughs> you know, it was very politely, like I'm dressed up for the party at the end of the film. Were people shocked? What? Were people shocked? I can't remember. I think they thought, <laughs> <laughs> I think they thought it was rather fun. <laughs> this podcast is also brought to you by Matcha.com. Grab a traditional matcha bowl or your favorite mug and enjoy a hot cup of matcha first thing in the morning. I don't drink coffee, but I think matcha is a wonderful way to start the day. It contains L-theanine, it contains caffeine, which is what I'm most interested in, and it has all sorts of purported health benefits. Matcha.com was founded by psychedelic pioneer Dr. Andrew Weil. All of their matcha is imported from Japan and third-party tested for heavy metals. It's delicious, probably healthy, and certainly stimulating. So enjoy a cup of matcha from matcha.com. I mean, there's another parallel between psychedelics and trepanation in that both are sort of medical processes. Yeah. So with psychedelics, yeah. you have people that aren't chemists 
endeavoring to become chemists because there's no other alternative but to do it yourself. And yeah, with trepanation, this is something that ideally would have been done by a surgeon, but yeah, you were absolutely. forced to. I mean, I, take I tried for four years to find a surgeon. For, not all the time, but I was always looking out and I followed every lead I, I got. And I got one or two good leads, but it didn't come out about. And then I thought, well, you know, of course I can do it. It's just self-control. Of course I can do it, it's just self-control. I mean, that's, and that's the hard part. And that's quite a good exercise to, as, as a test in self-control. I mean, I'm sure you do it all the time. People who ride horses, whatever. People are doing dangerous things all the time. It's a slightly different dangerous thing. That's the only thing. And um, so, but the interesting thing was, so I did it completely without any substances or anything, so I wanted to see the change. And once, funny enough, once you get going with those things, then it just becomes a process which you're doing. And it's fine, I find. It's the thinking about it, and, which is the bad part. But then when I got through, and I knew immediately, um, yeah, in the following kind of four hours, I, at the time, of course, I can't remember it completely, but it felt like the tide coming in, I expressed this. Shh. Quiet. New quietness. I mean, obviously, all of that can be placebo. Um, but even if it is, it's still a real experience. That was my experience. And then my dreams changed quite a lot, because I'm quite a, I'm an anxious person. And my anxiety is very largely around Birdie, my beloved pigeon, because he was living in an artificial circumstance of living in a house, you know, and that's, you're much more likely to get killed if you're um, in a strange circumstance. And so I had these awful dreams of people because of his head and things, which happened, that sort of thing. I, um, and after my trepanation, my, I didn't, which is interesting, I thought. Hmm. There was a noticeable um, diminishing. I, I mean, I, 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 know, I, I know I noticed that at the time. And things like that. And I felt better. And even my mother, who was very, you know, um, uh, conventional in many ways, uh, she says, well, it seems to have done around good. I mean, she, she's a Catholic conventional, wonderful lady, but you know, from the conventional side of the market. Not, my father wasn't, he was completely the other side. Um, but she thought it done me good. And she actually thought, you know, all the drugs, everyone said, Peggy, it's appalling how you love Amanda so publicly, you know, it sets a very bad example to her. Catholic brethren. Huh. <laughs> and she said, oh, it just seems to me it suits her. Or whatever she said, I can't remember, but words to that effect. Um, because it did, it made me a happier person. I was slightly depressed. Um, not really, but yeah, on the, on the cusp. And yeah, it definitely made me happier. And all of that can be, you know, who knows. But um, I think there's, there's a lot of other kind of, um, the fact that quite often people, shamans were trepanned. 
I mean, what I would suggest is that there's a little bit more brain function, simultaneous brain function, so there's a little bit more energy, like you have when you're a child, you have a little bit more. I mean, when you watch children, they're always drawing, painting, jumping, you know, with an internal bounce, which is lovely. And I think it gives you a little bit more of that, because you've got a little bit more But I wouldn't know now. I mean, has mine um, closed? Possibly. Do you know what I mean? And that's why I had it again at one point, because I thought... Oh, oh wow. Surgically? At a, where you did it yourself? I, I had it because I kept, people kept saying, would I drown them? Which, I, you know, I said, certainly not. You know. um, and that it kept happening, so I thought, well... And see why they can't do it themselves, but I'll f find a doctor <laughs> to do it for them, you know. And and so I did a very lovely American ho um, hospital in Mexico. And very, you know, totally made for Americans, basically. Called, called uh, Angeles or something. Um, and, and charming team. Um, and I set it up so there was, and yeah, and then there was a, a neuroscientist too, and we did some testing. Um, yeah, it was an interesting setup. So I set up that, and then I thought, well, this was, I think, 20 years later. I thought, no, am I sure that my hole is still open? Maybe it was too close, uh, too small to stay open for long because it was quite small. Maybe the. I think what happens is it doesn't close the bone. Maybe, but this is all easily uh, researched, like most bone. But it probably calcium gets put down. Mm. Who knows? I mean, it's so easy to research. So you had the the hole enlarged. Uh, this hole where I originally did it is seven, that sort of size, um, like the borehole, you saw. Um, and so then I decided to see, you know, see if the poor darlings who couldn't find their own search and better test it to see he wasn't a slaughterer or something. And so I went and had it down the bigger hole. In a second location? What? In a second location or the same location? Second location. Well, the first one was here, just above the hairline, in the middle. Uh-huh. And this one was here. I thought um, right hemisphere, you know, more fun to give that a bit more energy. Um, huh. Anyway. Um, and actually, they did it, uh, Jamie says, <laughs> you know, if he was American, he would have sued them. <laughs> but, I think they were saving on the electricity or something. So actually they used a ha hand pan and I, I kind of withstood it okay. And then Jamie said it was really appalling. So we ticked them off and I said, look, we're English and we put up with that sort of thing, but I promise you that if you did that to an American, they'd sue you. <laughs> <laughs> It's very tolerant. <laughs> what? It's very tolerant of you not to be bothered by them. Uh, no, yes, they're a very nice team. Yes. And I don't think they did anymore. But they, uh, yeah. But anyway, um, and that time also I noticed improvement. So, uh, you know, that's why I want to do the research. 
And it's interesting how you have clusters of trepan skulls. The highest cluster, I think, in the world is on the German-Dutch border. And then, obviously, you have clusters, but they're all around the world. And very often they're buried in a priest, uh, you know, a bit of pottery or silk or something, showing that they were a shaman or someone kind of superior, had they risen. So my hypothesis is that they liked trepanation because when they took their drugs, which the shamans did, they came down to a higher level. Mm -hmm. Right. So that your baseline consciousness yeah, your is... baseline consciousness is a little bit higher. Right. Say, say five mics. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So I think it's a fascinating research, trepanation. And I can't think why I've been so slow. But I've been preoccupied with very fascinating things. So, but since I last saw you, my preoccupations are LSD, and um, it's increased connectivity right through from the cell. You can see more activity, connectivity. Yes. And then in the rat, did I tell you that test? No. Where? Um, Teenage rats love new toys and, and stimulation. Adult rats start not really liking them and making their old toys, which they know, and getting in their set patterns. And then old rats definitely don't like a new toy. It's a threat. After having three days LSD, rat dose, um, the just adult ones start playing with new toys. The older ones don't, but if you give the older ones an enriched environment, i.e. stimulation, then they start playing with new toys. So, take on from that, you know, old age. Old age with stimulation, maybe one can keep it at bay or turn it back. Thank you. I think in many centres around the world, the priest caste, which was the kind of knowledgeable centre bunch, knew about trepanation quite often and about how to use compounds which change their consciousness. So I think they were fully, you know, yeah. could teach us a thing or two. And what do you? And we've just lost the habit. We took the wrong turn. We decided to uh, criminalise them. And uh, that was the... Because governments are threatened by things which could look as if they could overthrow them or disapprove of governmental control or something. So governments don't like those sort of things much. Right. Better to have, you know, a slave caste Right. A rich and happy slave cost. Right. And what do you think about the, the problem that because these things are taboo, that the people who are researching them, who believe in them, are often themselves somewhat unusual people, which sort of compounds the problem that you have, um, you have something like trepanation or psychedelics that maybe you could 
develop a very strong medical foundation or scientific foundation to demonstrate that they have some therapeutic validity. But the, the people that are historically most interested in these things are people who are on the fringes, who um, are a little bit unusual, and that further complicates their validation. Yeah. You know. Yeah, absolutely. So you have to, that's really why I started the Beckley Foundation. It was, it was really a Trojan horse, if you like. It was me putting on a different garb, a wooden officialdom. You know, I wasn't just me as a, a single, un, um, what do you call it, lettered female. Um, right. I became a kind of box, post box, with a lot of the most important scientists on my advisory board. So um, I got a kind of right to, oops, to slightly tell people at the UN or in government what to do. So I started playing that card kind of thing. Right. Um, and were very successful. Yeah, pretty successful. I mean, I started the um, you know, policy based on evidence base. I mean, it's so completely blindingly obvious. You wouldn't think you'd need a kind to be told. Right. I mean, not that I was the only person, but it, uh, we were doing it right at the beginning of that. They didn't even have the pretense of an evidence base. Huh. I remember saying to the chief of um, drug policy at the UN, he had his kind of form filled in by the cleaning lady, and we were saying that to him. And he, he said, he's a very terribly nice man in India. He said, well, that's a good beginning, isn't it? You know, there was not even a pretense that it was done by, uh, they just filled in their um, forms, whether you got more aid from America for going this way or that way, basically. Do you know what I mean? You didn't base it on evidence. Right. And what about some of these characters that have crossed paths with you over the years and, and how they ended up? Because you've known people on every side of this world, people who are very serious scientists, people who are uh, entirely on the fringes and everywhere in between. And I think it's kind of interesting to think that maybe 25 years ago there was a period where William Leonard Picard or someone like that was working with David Nichols and it was all scientific research and then you look at the circumstances today and David Nichols is you know, still doing scientific research and the interest in psychedelics is greater than it's ever been and William Leonard Picard is serving a life sentence. Right. William Leonard yeah. Picard is serving a exactly. life sentence in prison. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I think my approach, I, I don't think I know, was very different from, say, Dave Nichols, who I like very much and admire his work. Um, my approach was I came from a passion about consciousness and auto-consciousness from the age of whatever, eight. I studied the mystics and then I studied um, comparative religions and mysticism with the world's leading professor at All Souls in Oxford when I was 17. You know, so it was a kind of passion of mine. 
that. So that's my entry into that world. And then it seemed to fill, tick the box, boxes I was looking for, the direction I went. And when I found this kind of explanation of how you can get even to the mystical state and, you know, hypothetically, keep in control of it and use it. That's what, that's what I think the mechanism allowed one to do. Um, because, you know, what we were doing was what people are now doing, but it wasn't fashionable back in the 60s. So the underground thought we were, uh, you know, we didn't go to the festival, you know, the Mick Jagger festival and <laughs> whatever, taking our asset, going for a walk around the park and deciding how do you um, solve the crisis of the ego, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that was our, our game. And so I always lived, well, um, with Joe and with um, Bart and, you know, it was a very small but um, enough to keep the party going and it was an exciting creative party. But uh, in those days, other people weren't doing that. They were, you know, playing a different game. Right. Um, so we were slightly outside the game all the way along, that's all I'm saying. And, I mean, as a child, my father was an oddball anarchist. He, um, he told me, always do the opposite to what the government tells you. You know, he had no respect for professors and those sort of things, and officials and officers, <laughs> all of those sort of things. We got the rectal kratom guy right off camera right now. I mean, this is what you're telling me. I don't know. That's boofing kratom. It's become a meme on the internet. This is a kratom tea product. It's not intended for boofing. Even if the pH of the human rectum is between 7 and 8, and the pKa of metragenine is 8.1, that's just not really relevant here. This is a tea consumption in hot water. That's what it's for. That's what it should be used for. If you want this tea, you can get it at toptreeherbs.com. This place is very um, based in psychedelic history, strangely, because my grandmother, who was this very kind of brilliant American mathematician who grew up in Rome, um, her father's best friend were the James brothers. So, um, William James was oh, wow. very close. They were completely best friends, because uh, the father was American. And then when she lived here, um, Aldous Huxley used to walk down over the hills. He was a student. I don't know if it was here or somewhere else, but he used to walk down over the hills and come and talk with her all night they used to talk. Wow. And funny enough, none of, none of my parents ever mentioned it kind of thing. But I kind of, how did all that got letters and, you know, it's, it's rather funny. It's amazing. So it wasn't really a revolt, it was a more, like your thing wasn't a revolt in a way, communicate, your father was a, a documentary filmmaker, wasn't he? Yes. So it kind of, 
But he was, he, growing up, had a <coughs> psychiatrist who published a number of publications, yeah. He was a psychiatrist? No, 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 no. His, his childhood psychiatrist, her name was Doris Millman. I've looked up her publications, and she I, I, uh, successfully scared my father away from using psychedelics until he was probably in his late 30s. Right. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, probably his mid to late 30s, because right. he was convinced, truly convinced, that he would go insane. Right. Yeah. And how old is he? What generation? He is, I believe he just turned 73, actually. 73. 73, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they were brought up, and Peter Thiel, who I was um, telling the wonders of... Um, Psilocybin, I think it was. And he said he was brought up on that advert where your, your brain is fry, in a frying pan. This is your brain on drugs. I know. Do you know? Of course, yeah. Yeah. And you know the actor who was in the this is your brain on drugs advertisement was supposedly really drunk while they were filming it. Oh, right. It's, it's a... Right. But um, the one I think I saw on English television was your brain like an egg, oh, thank you, in, a, in the frying pan, sizzling away. And he said it completely terrified him. I guess it's, yeah, there's a, a sort of ethical question with these, that sort of uh, anti-drug PSA work mm -hmm. where I, I was actually speaking with someone who it was responsible for a lot of the anti-methamphetamine PSAs in the United States, and I suggested that maybe it would be a more effective tactic to just talk responsibly about the real risks and not sensationalize anything so that people had a more balanced understanding of what made methamphetamine potentially problematic and uh, you know he said are you out of your mind you can't you can't convince people to do anything using reason no, you have to scare it. them yeah I mean it's so obvious actually the whole thing is so strange but I think people are slightly changing that's all one can say I hope so and change can suddenly become very quick you know vump like, in England, whatever it is, 70% of people stop smoking in public places or whatever. I mean, one couldn't have imagined such a change. Right. And so hopefully that could happen for the better in adopting, you know, my sensible drug regulation. Ensures the person gets a clean dose and it's regulated, as opposed to being totally unregulated. With the very worst drugs getting pushed the most, because they're the highest and most, uh, uh, most addictive. So to the dealer's benefit. I mean, it's madness. Every... Yeah. It makes suffering at every turning. Yeah. There's a lot of things that have to be undone. A lot of uh, 
a lot of mistakes from the past that have to be undone before people begin to see these things realistically. Yeah. Because it also changes the nature of the experience when you think about somebody taking LSD who's convinced that it's neurotoxic and is going to make them permanently insane. What are the chances that they're going to have a positive experience? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Whereas if you think that it's a medicine that yeah. heals your brain, no more. makes you more intelligent. And the amazing thing with the drug laws, I forget, it came up yesterday, or maybe with you, I can't remember. But it's all the millions of poor little people at the bottom who go to prison. And the banks, what bank was it? Some bank had 350 billion. And I mean, I'm sure lots of banks do, but there was one quite clear case. And absolutely no one went to prison on that. Oh, yes. Yeah. So these are, these are your photos? Um, Vivi said you might want some, and there were two sources. We had very few photographs. Mm. We didn't have until nowadays when one has millions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, that's rather a nice one of Bath. Funny enough, when we were going to the Trapan shop in, um, I think. Um, Cavendish Street or something near Harley Street and there was a nice man who gave me all the advice and then we found this pigeon damaged on the road and we took it home but he's rather uh, he was short-sighted that was rather hypnotic eyes so that's him and me was this pigeon? This was not birdie. That's not birdie. It's a forerunner. Did it have any of the qualities that you loved in birdie, or was it just a... It, a it, it was a passing pigeon. I think it was wounded on the road, and we took it home, and I think it survived. You know, So it was a kind of um, just... But it, it was a, it's a... It's a nice photo of Bart, I think. Did he love birds as well? Yeah. Well, I, I can't tell. Funny enough, Jamie's got a thing, had a thing about pigeons, but raising pigeons. But it's, it's, he was amazingly, I thought, good, he was good looking and very quiet and very enormously knowledgeable. You know, on natural history, he, he was like an encyclopedia. Of, but nicely, you know, he was just very informed because his mother dying when he was 18 months, you know, he, what did he do? Yeah, he started collecting reptiles. And quite young, he had 300 reptiles in his bedroom, which he was studying, <laughs> you know. So obviously, if your mother dies, you kind of, have more space to fill in with obsessions. That that was our room in Embankment, where I still live, in London, overlooking the river here. And this was a tiny little room, which very often one had about 
a great many people in it. And that's me and that's Bartman at that period. And that was that period. So that was when he first came to London. We were living in the embankment. It was a very happy period. And then this one was just before he came to England. It was when he trepanned himself, um, kind of six months. That was um, with the Provos in Amsterdam having a kind of ceremonial unwrapping. Um, Unwrapping of the bandages on yeah, his head. Yeah, I mean, it, very prover that was. But, um, and this is rather a nice one. I don't know if you can see. The light's very bad. And those are the scrolls. So Bart decided to kind of summarise the, the, this new information in a way which could only be described as the kind of most putting off <laughs> <laughs> the officials of the time. Um, but actually, it kind of condensed in images the story, you know, and that was the point, to condense in the minimum form. And this is the large mechanism of, um, about um, the fall of blood from the brain as you become adult. And then there are all the different ways that you can increase um, the blood in the brain. The first one is standing on your head where gravity is in the, on the side of the blood. And Albert Hoffman, when I first met him, I said, have you ever thought that um, LSD results in more blood in the brain capillaries? And he said, um, oh, I'm just a little Swiss chemist, not a, a physician, or whatever he said. Um, but I and my wife and Nita, we hang from our feet every day. And I got a photograph at 90 hanging from their feet <laughs> to get more blood in my brain. So he was a believer in that concept. Right? So he was a believer in that concept. Well, that's what he said to me. That was his answer. Wow. Um, which was sweet. And I've got a photograph of her hanging in that book. And they did it till their 90s. Wow. <laughs> and why do you think he chose to publish his hypothesis on these scrolls instead of in a medical journal? Sort of saying, fuck you. You know, he didn't play it by the rules of the game. And uh, probably I would have encouraged him to have. You know because you put on the clothes of the establishment and played their game, and there was so much right on his side, you know. But he, the, the climate of the times was the proverb who were provoking against the establishment. And, and he was the best pupil of his year, and the professors have all asked him to be there, whatever you ask, I don't know. And then he would fail at um, abstractions, birth, giving birth kind of thing, a tiny little side thing. I think twice, and then he's all well, you know, they're just going to... Because he called his daughter marijuana and trepanned himself. Both controversial things Both to do. Both controversial things. So, um, do you think you learned a lesson from him? Because here's someone who has an idea that you believe in, who chose to thumb his 
knows at the medical establishment, not I to publish? I didn't know him at that stage. Oh, okay. That was before I knew him. And I have to say that when he came to England, which was quite short after they came to England at Joe's invitation, and I met him at that party the first night he was there, um, after... Um, sorry, I lost my thread. Um, you met him at a party, at Joe's party? What? You were saying you met him at Joe's party? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think what I was trying to say about him. Oh, about him thumbing his nose at the medical establishment yeah. and whether you learned something yeah. about... So then he was, he wanted to teach them in a provocative way, which wasn't really my way. And I kept thinking, my God, if only I was playing this, I could do it so much better. Because I would seduce them by the knowledge and play their game and mine by doing the very best research. You know, that, that's, I felt right from the very early age, early time, that's the way I'd do it. But it's a more female world, way. Right. Um, and then he had a misfortune of when we were in England, he couldn't come to England, we couldn't go to Holland, da, 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 kind of separated us for, not totally, but not for living. And he got this German, clever, but, but like, um, you know, a misfit who was a bad, um, and, and provoked the kind of shooting in their face kind of approach, which I think was a mistake. And I always said it was a mistake, which I think it was. So, you know, and, um, but anyway, you know, things go the way things go, but I, I think, uh, that was one of the sadnesses of Prohibition, because I think we played a good game together. I mean, I think he had these amazing insights, but I've got a good uh, grasp of reality. can keep his excesses in control. Um, so, but that was kind of stopped by the powers to be in fate, or whatever you like to say. And what did become of him, of Bart? Um, he worked, he got a job as a librarian, but it was a job they gave to um, people at the bottom, which was very insulting to him. Um, I mean, he could have done something about it, but he couldn't come to England. I could have gone there, and you know he would have liked me to marry gone there. In fact, one of the things that stopped me was Birdie, because one couldn't take Birdie to Holland. Then he could never go out. Well, if Buck could have come to England, then it would have all been much easier, you know. And um, we had no money in Holland. I, I, I'm, I didn't like the language. He wasn't very happy there. It's a pretty traumatic thing that happened, to be kicked out of the country. Yeah, it was, it was. It was, it, it, because it was actually, him and Joe could work really well together. 
and you know, building up, um, you know, hopefully having influence on science and getting scientific research and whatever, doctors, etc. That's what we were he heading for. Um, so it, it just, uh, and that's, I think, you know, what I learned is that you can be a genius, have amazing insights, but then probably because of the genius you have certain more flaws, but I mean, we all have flaws, but certain flaws which trip you up. Right. Um, and so, you know, he had a series of very unfortunate things happening to him. I mean, he's at one of the best medical schools in the world. Then his belief in these controversial ideas results in him getting kicked out of the country. It destroys a relationship that you had. And the research that he had dedicated his life to was not medically validated. So what, what did all of this do to him? Um, yeah, it wasn't good for him. That's society. he. He was still kind of jarred in many ways. I mean, he could have been doing this boring job, and then he'd sit down. You'd, I'd go over to Holland or something, and we'd get straight into working at a very high level on a high dose. He hadn't had anything for quite a long time. He'd immediately get into the high mood. Um, he sat on a very uncomfortable chair. <laughs> he didn't go in for such things as comfort. You know, and the idea of going to the Mediterranean or something was fun. Uh, oh, I, uh, why not just put some salt in your bath? You know, I mean, everything was... Um, I always remember the chairs completely hard. <laughs> 